That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host of this podcast, and the reason I do it is that I was one mile away from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened, and let's just say I'm motivated. Today, we have a very special interview that was recorded just this morning with Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com. Arnie's in Southern California to speak about the problems at San Onofre to politicians, the media, and the public, and I know you're just going to love what comes across in this interview. Today is Tuesday, April 24th, 2012, one year and 44 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011, and here is the latest nuclear news. Well, the day after we originally covered this story in last week's nuclear hot seat, things really heated up about NRC Commissioner Christine Stidnicki and her attempt to get uh, reappointed to the NRC for another five years. She's the GOP nominee, and according to a spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who's a Democrat from Nevada, Commissioner Svidnicki, quote, lied to Congress and disqualified herself from a second term. Now, Reid's blunt opposition to the Republican pick is part of a longer battle over the direction of the agency that regulates nuclear power. Reid spokesman Adam Gentleson said Svidnicki, who's 45, is opposed because she lied to Congress about her past work on Yucca Mountain. Furthermore, according to Gentleson, Commissioner Svidnicki has an abysmal record on nuclear safety, demonstrating that she puts the interests of the nuclear industry ahead of the safety of American citizens. As background, Reed's battle with Svinicki, a nuclear engineer, goes back decades. During the 1990s, she worked on Yucca policy at the Department of Energy, while Reed was a committee chairman opposing it. She later went to work for Senator Larry Craig, a Republican from Idaho, where she handled Yucca's policy and, say Reed, staffers involved with the issue at the time, regularly tussled with Reed's staff, including Gregory Yasko, who was then a Reed aide and is now chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. At Svinicki's first Senate confirmation hearing in 2008, Environment and Public Works Committee Chairwoman Barbara Boxer, a Democrat from California, asked Svinicki if, during her time at the Energy Department, she worked on Yucca Mountain. I did not know, Svinicki responded. That's a direct quote. Subsequently released administration emails and documents show that Svinicki was very much involved with Yucca while at the Energy Department. According to one of Senator Boxer's aides, Senator Boxer believes that in this post-Fukushima era, Ms. Svidnicki should be replaced by someone who has demonstrated a clear commitment to safety first. Now, the day after this story hit, word came from the White House that President Barack Obama will nominate Republican Christine Svidnicki to a new term on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Note that as background to this, the largest contributors to President Obama's initial election campaign for president and now his re-election war chest are allied with the nuclear industry. According to a government report, the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to protect human health with RADnet was potentially impaired at the time of Fukushima. An internal audit by the EPA Inspector General's office has confirmed that many of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's radiation monitors were out of service at the height of the 2011 Fukushima power plant meltdown in Japan. 
RADnet consists of 124 stations scattered throughout the U.S. territories and 40 deployable air monitors that can be sent to take readings anywhere. At the time of the Fukushima crisis, many monitors were broken, while others had not undergone filter changes in so long they could not be used to accurately detect real-time radiation levels, according to the Inspector General's report. At the time of Fukushima, 25 of the 124 installed RADnet monitors, or 20%, were out of service and had been for an average of 130 days. In addition, six of the 12 RADnet monitors that were sampled, meaning 50% of them, had gone over eight weeks without a filter change, and two of those had not had their filter changed in over 300 days. This despite the fact that EPA policy calls for operators to change the filters twice per week. Other evidence about the shirking of duties by the EPA is that in Hilo, Hawaii, the EPA had detected radioactive iodine in milk at concentrations six times greater than the agency's maximum contaminant level. In Little Rock, Arkansas, the agency detected radioactive iodine in milk at concentrations about three times the regulatory level as set by the EPA. But at the time, the agency defended its statements that the iodine levels were not a threat by noting that they were below emergency guidelines set by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. EPA officials now, though, question whether the FDA's guidelines were appropriate, given how dramatically less strict they were than the agency's own enforceable regulations. Daniel Hirsch, a nuclear policy lecturer at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap, said in a prepared statement in response to this report, the April 19 report by the EPA Inspector General's office also casts further doubt on the agency's already controversial claims that radiation from Fukushima did not pose any public health threat on U.S. soil. The report raises serious questions about bland assurances at the height of the Fukushima disaster that no radiation was reaching the U.S. It also raises serious questions about whether EPA will be prepared if a nuclear incident occurs in the United States. Hirsch asked whether the agency views its job as providing reassurance or providing factual information. Now, that's a question that deserves to be asked all across the board. In Canada, their federal government is not testing West Coast salmon or other fish for Fukushima radiation. Fisheries experts are calling for long-term testing of West Coast salmon for radiation. According to Stan Probojitz, a, a fisheries biologist with the Watershed Watch Salmon Society, I don't think a one-off sort of test would be appropriate. Salmon migrate very long distances, so we need to take that into account when we do the monitoring. Marine biologist Alexandra Morton asserted that more testing should be done. I think the public deserves to know, she said, not just salmon, but really all of the fish. But according to Canadian Fish Inspection Agency spokesman Guy Gravel, any specific testing for radioactivity or anything of that sort, I don't believe there's any plan to do anything specific. Are you looking for reassurances or to get the information out? See, it has applications everywhere. Moving over to Japan, TEPCO is going to be dumping groundwater from under the reactor buildings into the ocean. This according to Kyoto News. TEPCO will be building about a dozen pumping wells to cut in half the amount of groundwater flowing into the reactor buildings. This is scheduled to start operating around September or October. TEPCO wants to use the wells to direct part of the groundwater into the Pacific Ocean, 
where it's likely to be dumping about 1,000 tons of water per day. TEPCO would check the contamination level of the groundwater for radiation before releasing it into the sea. Yes, but, again, examining the semantics of the nuclear industry, checking the contamination level is not the same as saying there's no radiation. It's not even saying the radiation is below a particular level, and as we all know, there is no safe level of radiation to be exposed to. Also dealing with TEPCO, uh, there was an interview with Toshio Kimura, who used to operate the reactors at uh, Fukushima Daiichi and maintain the fuel rods at that nuclear power plant. He has confessed that TEPCO has deceived the Japanese government, which regulates the nuclear power plants, and done so in a number of ways. According to Kimura, as part of operational management of the nuclear power plants, we used to rewrite the daily operative reports. We used to access the computer to falsify the data when things weren't going our way. Meanwhile, in Japan, women have been taking the future into their own hands by organizing radiation information centers at a local church. Terumi Katakoka, who lives just 62 miles from Fukushima Daiichi, is one of thousands of Japanese who frankly don't believe what governments and scientists are telling them about the health effects of low-dose radiation. Good for her, good for them. Katoka has set up the Aizu Radiation Information Center and the Aizu Society to protect the lives of children from radiation at her local United Church of Christ Church in Azewakamatsu. The Aizu Society, which was established last May, links mothers who are worried about their children's exposure to radiation and lessens their sense of isolation through sharing information on its Japanese blog and email list. Membership is free of charge. A physician who works with them, Tomoyuki Yamazaki, he's a doctor and a United Church member in Wakayama Prefecture in Western Japan, has said that an increasing number of children he has seen have nosebleeds that don't stop, diarrhea, dark circles under their eyes, and incurable stomatitis, which is an inflammation of the mucus lining in the mouth. A growing number of children at the center have pains in their chest. Kataoka said, we ask so many things of the government, but they don't listen. In Japan, there are rumors spreading about dead fetuses in women's stomachs and birth malformations, but they can't say for certain that it's caused by the radiation. This came from an interview by Nadine and Terry Rebolt in the Asian Pacific Journal, Japan Focus, with Iwata Wataru, who is a composer and very noted in Japan. He posed many difficult questions regarding the long-term health risks faced by the victims of Fukushima. He said that people have been highly exposed to radiation, and we do not know what will happen in the following years. Stories spread, dead fetuses in mother's stomachs, malformations, but we cannot say for sure at present what is caused by radiation and what is not. The head of the radio station in Koryama recently had a baby born with a heart malformation similar to the ones children in Chernobyl had. Journalists spread fear with these stories, but again, no conclusions can be made because there's no raw data on this to investigate and analyze. What is certain, according to Wataru, is that people need follow-ups. They need to have examinations and be treated as soon as we find something. We need to look carefully for abnormalities because the possibility of developing disease has increased. However, the government refuses to remove the medical fees for those under 18 in the Fukushima prefecture. 
Only sanitary control examinations conducted as a part of the health surveys are free. At the same time as all of that is going on, isn't it nice to know that with support from the Minister for Agriculture, there has been a beauty contest in Fukushima that was held to find the prettiest student who ate only food from the Fukushima region. How beautiful can that be if one is contaminated with radiation? So having heard that level of insanity, it's time to hear from one of the few voices of sanity to have emerged in this ongoing nuclear mess. Nuclear Hot Seat has a very special interview for you today. Arnie Gunderson is chief engineer of the engineering consulting company Fairwinds Associates and a former nuclear power industry executive. He served as an expert witness in the investigation of the Three Mile Island accident, has spoken out on behalf of shutting down Vermont Yankee, and has criticized the design of the new Westinghouse AP-1000 nuclear reactors. Since Fukushima, he has been providing calm, accurate interpretations of difficult scientific information so that any of us can understand exactly what's going on at this nuclear accident. He's also been keeping us informed of the ongoing problems and dangers that still exist. Now he's providing his expertise to Southern California activists working to keep San Onofre shut down. Arnie, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, thanks for having me. Wonderful. So what brings you to Southern California at this time? Well, I'm a consultant for Friends of the Earth, and they asked me to take a look at the steam generator modifications that Edison uh, implemented on the uh, San Onofre unit. And what is the situation at San Onofre as you see it? Well, sometime back in 2004, is my best guess, is the uh, uh, Edison made a decision to replace the steam generators. And lots of people do that. Um, and they made a decision to use an alloy called uh, Inconel 690. And lots of people do that, too. But then they made a critical decision. They also made a, dis a decision to add a whole bunch more tubes inside the steam generator. Now there's uh, 9,700 tubes. and Before there had been uh, 400 less than that. So they made the decision to get more power out. Is and that what the additional tubes were able to do in, in their minds, give them some extra power? The, they haven't put that on the record, but there's no need for the extra tubes to run San Onofre at the power it's licensed for. So uh, one of the things we're digging into, and one of the things I'm down here for, is to look into just that question, how many uh, people knew about the decision, and uh, was it based on the like uh, what I call a stealth power upgrade? Were they trying to sneak in extra tubes on the ratepayers' expense and uh, then afterward crank out more power? That's, a, that's a, an important question that uh, has to be answered yet. So with these new tubes, with, we know about the uh, leak that took place on January 31st and also shortly thereafter the discovery of the degradation of the pipes, uh, certainly within the other reactor. What has, what has happened since the discovery there and what's your take on it? Well, I would put the order in the opposite direction. I, they knew they had problems in Unit 2. They were shut down uh, during a refueling for Unit 2, and they had already detected pipe degradation. The NRC was going to let them start up, even though they had the pipe degradation. 
Then Unit 3 failed. And suddenly people began, it was, it was obvious what the problem was, and people began to ask questions, what about Unit 2? So they had to fess up to the problem on Unit 2, even though, in fact, they knew about it before the Unit 3 leaks. Now, so both units are down, and let's get back to that issue of they made a decision to add tubes, and that was created a whole chain of events where they had to make major, major modifications to the structure. They took out something called a space cylinder. They made the tube sheets thicker. They changed the flow over the tubes. And so this cascading series of events gets to the point where the flow is changed over the tubes, and now they're rattling, and they're colliding into each other. So the collision of the tubes into each other is causing them to get dented, and then, of course, repeated collisions cause them to break. So what we've got now are 500 tubes that have been plugged, and um, uh, likely more to fail in the future, because plugging the tubes isn't going to stop the vibration. So this, as long so as... They, excuse the, me, the plugging is just kind of like a patch job on the outside of it? Uh, actually, it's a patch job on the inside. The, they plug the tube on the inside, but the the water is flowing on the outside of the tube as well. The clean radioact non-radioactive water is what's causing these tubes to vibrate. And because they change the pattern of the tubes, that's causing um, the vibration. And they change the pattern of the tubes because they had that stay cylinder that they removed to get more tubes in. Now, how possible, how feasible is it that this can even be fixed to the point where it can be a reliable piece of equipment again? Well, it can be um, fixed in that it might be able to run for six months without more tube damage. But to be reliable and run for 20 more years or 30 more years, uh, I don't think this uh, this generator is going to make it. I think the vibrations that that early decision made are going to cause them to have to replace the steam generator again at some point in the future. Now, can they limp along um, and tolerate tube leaks in the future until they get a new generator? I think the NRC might let that happen. Unfortunately, they always let that happen. But it, will it be reliable in the future? No, I don't think it will be. One of the things that um, strikes me are the semantics that are used around nuclear power. I mean, things are not significant, or it's not uh, it's not of immediate concern. They'll always qualify in that way. And in connection with San Onofre, um, the uh, word from the NRC was that San Onofre and Southern California Electric had to quote unquote understand the situation. But understanding is not the same as fixing it to the point where it's safe for those people who live within proximity of the reactor, as certainly I do. Um, what do you think is, is the, going to be the pathway of the NRC once Southern California says, well, we understand the problem? Would they let it get back online? Well, there's three parties in this, uh, in this dance. There's Southern California Edison. And, you know, their management has already signaled their troops that they want to start this unit up. But just today in the paper. Right, I caught um, the story. One of the, their senior manager says, I'm more than 50% sure this plant's going to start up by the summer. Well, if I'm a guy working for that senior manager, I get the message. I'm going to push my analysis to make sure that it works during the summer. 
Now the NRC has um, um, it, it is um, it is complicit in this. It's like a tweedledee tweedledum relationship between the NRC and the, and Southern California Edison. And I don't expect that they will um, ask too many questions. This unit likely will start up if it's up to the NRC. But there's the other party in the dance, and that's Mitsubishi. And Mitsubishi has said that they're not going to be ready until the last day of August, since September 1. They're not going to have their analysis done. So I have a real problem with the NRC in Southern California, Edison, saying it's ready when the guy who made it says that he needs a couple more months to figure out exactly what went wrong. How do places like Southern California Edison and, uh, of course, the NRC view you when you come up with this information and present it to them? Well, you know, that's a that's a great question. You know, I'm I'm a trained nuclear engineer, and I was a senior vice president, uh, but yet there's still a lot of personal attacks, and um, and that's that's unfortunate. You know, I think that there's that Gandhi quote: when you uh, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, um, then they fight you, then you win. Well, they did the ignoring and they did the laughing, and and now um, uh, they're insulting and they're um, uh, making some personal attacks, and that's just the nature of the beast. I think it's it's just business. You know, it's it's a fear that um, uh, that they may lose an asset, and they're reacting out of fear, and that's just the way life is. Now, you're here in Southern California to uh, appear this evening, among other things, to appear this evening at the Irvine City Council. Uh, what is that meeting about, and what do you hope to accomplish there? Well, the public is allowed short comments, and uh, apparently um, I'll be allowed a, a little bit longer comment period because I've come from a long way. Um, you know that old uh, that old song, I know an old lady who swallowed a spider and then the bird and then the cat and then the dog and on and on? Well, this is a cascading problem like that. They They made a decision to add more tubes, which caused the vibration, which caused the leaks. And until we get back and we really face the fact that um, this is caused by um, a decision made by Edison back um, eight years ago, um, I don't think there's, uh, we've learned all of the lessons here. So I plan to tell that to the, uh, the Irving City Council and also inform them that plugging the tubes is not going to stop the vibration. So, in other words, the possibility of additional tube failures is always going to be with us as long as that particular steam generator with that configuration is online. Now, there's an example of that. Uh, there's an example of that back in 02 when the um, um, the uh, oyster, not the oyster Creek, I'm sorry, when the Quad Cities reactor shut down, and it had cracks in its steam uh, steam dryer. Different kind of reactor, but it had major cracks in the steam dryer. And the NRC got a bunch of, uh, the, the utility got a bunch of experts together, said, we fixed the problem. The NRC said they fixed the problem, they started back up. And a year later, the cracks were so bad that an eight-foot piece of metal went flying down a main steam line and got stuck in an isolation valve. And the NRC said, well, it's a reliability problem. It's not a safety-related problem. Now, I'm sorry, but the NRC is not doing their job. They didn't do their job on, on the Quad Cities reactor. And it appears that they haven't learned that lesson on the, um, on the San Onofre reactors. Um, the time to analyze this is before it breaks again. 
the tubes can um, will continue to vibrate. And the, the, of course, the, the problem in everybody's mind is that they can cascade, almost like lots of trees in a forest. If one falls, it hits the one next to it, hits the one next to it. And if um, if this problem is not rectified, then you can get not just a little leak like we had uh, back in January, but you can get a massive leak. That, of course, is everybody's safety concern. So my concern is that the NRC and Edison are too anxious to get that plant up and running until they've really thought through the safety ramifications of this. What other work are you doing um, with the people who brought you over, Friends of Earth and also the great activist community around San Onofre? What other work are you doing with them in your few days here? Um, I, I am going to be meeting with the press tomorrow. Uh, which is Wednesday, and uh, we have a press conference planned, and um, the details of that will be released on Wednesday. But there, there is some information uh, new that has come out in the last week that we do plan to bring up at the press conference on Wednesday. Wonderful. Now, as we continue with these nuclear issues, um, as I said, you've been one of the voices of calm and sanity and certainly made sense to me in the early days when I didn't know who to understand or who to believe. How do you see your place in this ongoing public awakening to the problems of nuclear power generation? Well, at San Onofre, I think the, there's, there's three issues. There's the steam generators, um, but there's also the, the two big issues at San Onofre are the, the seismic issues. Um, when this plant was built, we didn't know much about um, seismicity, and we know a lot more now. And we've got to convince the NRC that they've got to go back and open up that docket and take a look at was San Onofre really analyzed for the worst case or are there actions lurking out there that uh, that could happen? You know, as human beings, we have this mentality, if it doesn't happen in 100 years, it's not going to happen. Well, the Fukushima uh, earthquake and, and tsunami were a once-in-a-thousand-year event. We really need to have a longer horizon on these kinds of, uh, of uh, events that Mother Nature can throw at us. So number one is seismic. The other one, though, is that California has grown up in the last 40 years, and emergency planning uh, is dramatically more difficult in Southern California now than it was 40 years ago because the population has increased dramatically. And so the NRC needs to address seismicity and the fact that with all the population increases in Southern California, would San Onofre ever be licensed now? And the answer is no. You wouldn't license San Onofre if it were a new plant. So why are we thinking about relicensing it as an old plant? Uh, those, I guess I, my role is just to um, hold her face to the mirror and, make, and ask the questions that really need to be answered by the regulators. What can Nuclear Hot Seat listeners do to support you and your valuable work? Um, well, thank you for the compliment. Uh, the, um, the Fairwinds website has a donation button, and, and we're not, Maggie and I are not taking a penny out of it, but there certainly is uh, production costs and the computer costs to run the servers and things like that that we'd like to keep covered. So uh, personally, that's one thing they could do. But the other thing is um, the um, the NRC has yet to see a power plant, a nuclear plant it doesn't like. But that doesn't mean that we as citizens are powerless. You know, in Vermont, the legislature voted against it, and um, 
uh, yes, there's a legal challenge, but it's important for citizens to express how they really feel. So I think that the, Einstein had a wonderful saying. He said that this decision has to be made in the um, in the town greens of America. It shouldn't be a top-down, forced upon us decision. If the people of California want nukes, good. If, but if they don't, um, then then the, the authorities need to know about it. So I, I guess the other thing that everybody can do is talk to their town councils, talk to their state legislatures, talk to Barbara Boxer, you know, um, and let them know how you really feel. And eventually, the momentum will swing. One final question for you, Arnie. Um, I know from my personal experience that this information around this issue, Fukushima, San Onofre, all the rest, can be devastating sometimes personally. And you're up close and personal with this all the time. How do you keep yourself going? What keeps you in good heart? And what happens on those days when perhaps uh, it slips a little? Um, you know, I go to bed at night praying that I'm wrong. And that's a hard way to live. Um, when when all these things you know, if if they go the way you expect they go because of your accidents like Fukushima. You know, my wife and I were walking um, right before the accident and she said, where's the next accident going to be? I said, I don't know, but I know it's going to be in a Mark 1 reactor, which turns out to be Fukushima. Um, so um, I guess I just I, I just pray for the goodness of other people and hope that, uh, you know, together we can all make a change. I will hold that in my heart as well. Arnie Gunderson, thank you for all that you do. Um, go knock some sense into the Irvine City Council tonight. Uh, Arnie Gunderson is with Fairwinds, which is spelled F as in Frank, A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D dot S dot com. And thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat Podcast on Tuesday, April 24, 2012. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Of course, that interview will be posted at nuclearhotseat.com and be available for any of you to download, spread, make it viral. We need to get the information out, and Arnie is, of course, one of the best sources we've got. Another story from Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds in the last week, and that is that there is evidence that cedar pollen in Southern California has picked up cesium. Arnie said as part of an interview uploaded by Chris Nolan TV, quote, we had someone send us cedar samples that did indicate in Southern California that we had picked up both cesium-137 and cesium-134. When you find them both together, that's a Fukushima signature. The incense cedar, the kind of tree being referenced here, grows on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains in California, across the northern part of the state, and into the western part of Oregon. There are also spotty areas in Southern California and on the western side of the Rockies, including my beloved Sequoia National Park. Here's a happy note. A 92-year-old woman who was arrested for unlawful trespass at Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant was arraigned in Wyndham Superior Court Criminal Division on Thursday, April 19. When asked what her plea was to the charge, Frances Crow of Northampton, Massachusetts, Francis Crow of Northampton, Massachusetts, said, I plead for the future of life and all living things in New England. To which I would say, and the rest of the planet as well. Thank you, Francis, for those inspiring and gutsy words. Holistic healing time. Now, 
one doesn't necessarily think of cars as needing holistic healing from radiation. But they do need our attention as exposure to radiation keeps increasing. What this means is that you need to replace your car's air filter regularly. If you can afford it, do it every time you get your oil changed. Here's why. Whether it is radiation from last year's radiation plume that came across immediately after Fukushima, or radiation that comes to us in ever-increasing amounts from rainouts and snowouts, your car's air filter will catch it and hold it before it goes further into the engine. That's good for the engine, but it's bad for you because it concentrates any radioactivity in the filter. And if it stays in that air filter, you will be in proximity with it and you will be exposed to it every time you get in your car. No matter what the background radiation says, you will have your own little radiation center in your car. So it's best to get rid of it. Having said that, at the same time, you need to talk with your auto mechanic about this problem and the problems that could arise for them and their workers from exposure to radioactivity from these car filters. These people need to protect themselves and dispose of the waste properly. It's also a service to their customers if they can run a test on the filter to find out if they were radioactive or not. Finally, for those of us who drive Japanese cars, and I do, realize that if you use real parts from the manufacturer as opposed to aftermarket, these parts come in shipments from Japan and the shipments are not being tested for possible radiation. Now, we already know that cars shipped from Japan to other countries, notably Russia and Egypt, have been found to be radioactive, and thus the shipments have been refused in those countries. There is not yet evidence that car parts are radioactive, not that anybody is testing for this, which is a great, great way to say that there is no evidence. See, no evidence, but they didn't test. So what you need to do is talk with your mechanic and dealerships about having a Geiger counter on hand and testing all arriving car parts to make certain that they are radiation-free. And if they are not, refuse the shipment, send it back, and at the same time, talk to your local media. We need to get the word out about this. Two quick activist notes. There's a big event coming up in Detroit tomorrow, April 25th. The No Nukes Activists, together with members of the Occupy movement, will converge on the GE shareholders meeting in Detroit, GE makers of the famous, infamous Mark I reactor. Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps and longtime anti-nuclear crusader Michael Keegan will present a resolution on behalf of the GE Shareholders Alliance to divest from nuclear energy. There will be a call for an immediate shutdown to all Mark I reactors, including Fermi-1, and saying no to the proposed Fermi-2, both of which would be on the shores of Lake Michigan. So that's in the Midwest. We wish them well. And if you happen to be in Southern California or can get there by this Sunday, April 29, we are going to have an historic demonstration, peaceful but historic, outside of the San Onofre nuclear power plant. This will be in commemoration of Chernobyl. I will be speaking that day about having been at Three Mile Island when it happened. And for the first time ever, representatives of all three big international nuclear accidents, Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island, will all be speaking at an event about what it's like to find yourself in the immediate vicinity, directly in the path of a nuclear disaster. 
truly this is an historic opportunity to hear some truth that hasn't been put out and to find ways to get involved. So please, if you can, join us between noon and 3 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we are getting together in the parking lot just south of San Onofre and walking a short distance to our staging area. Full information will be available on nuclearhotseat.com or at residenceorganizedforasafeenvironment.org. Here's the final thought for today. There is now a free iPhone and iPad app that features poems written by the children of Fukushima Prefecture. It has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. The majority of the poems came from a collection called Our Words from Children in Fukushima, which were written for the magazine Blue Window years before the disaster, but have an eerie sense of presence of mind in light of what happened at Fukushima. A sixth grader named Terumi Sakine wrote, I want to appreciate that nothing in particular happened today. People as old as 90 contributed to this collection of more than 400 poems, as did a four-year-old who wrote, I love kindergarten. I love flowers. I love slides. I won't give in to radiation. Neither should the rest of us. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 24, 2012. Now you can find us all over the place. We are posted at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are on Facebook, both as a group page and a regular page, and you can subscribe for free on iTunes if you click under Podcasts. If you have a moment, go to the new Facebook site and click on Like. It will help us show up in the Google algorithm. This podcast is also now available in syndication on AirProgressive.org, a streaming web radio program. We are broadcast podcast on Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. and Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. And an advance notice, keep your eyes open because my ebook, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, From Three Mile Island to Beyond Fukushima, a very personal nuclear react- reaction, that's going to be published very soon and I'll let you know all about it. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and if I don't see you at this Sunday's demonstration, I will speak with you next Tuesday. <laughs>